All right, once you've met someone, you can take a seat, but only when you've met someone. We know how much you guys love that time, and uh, for all of you outgoing people, you love that time. Um, hey, just want to say welcome. We're so glad you're here. My name is Josiah. If I haven't met you yet, I'd love to meet you after, after service today. Uh, but just want to say what's up. Welcome. Good morning. Welcome to The Exchange. Um, if you are new, we're called The Exchange because it's really the gospel in a word that God who knew no sin became sin, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And so um, we're called The Exchange because it, it really just shows in one word that God took our sin and he gave us his righteous life. And so we just want to say welcome. We're glad you're here. We're actually in the gospel of Mark. So if you need a Bible, raise your hand. Uh, we'd love to get you a Bible so you could follow along with us. There's something about a paper Bible and following along. But uh, we're in the Gospel of Mark, and we're in chapter 6, Mark chapter 6. Again, if you need a Bible, raise your hand. We'd love to get you one. Uh, Mark 6, let me kind of uh, fill you in, catch you up to speed in case you are new. Uh, the Gospel of Mark, it's a year-long journey we're taking in the Gospel of Mark. We want to slow down and look at the life and ministry of Jesus, who he is, what he said, what he claimed, what others said about Jesus, we're looking at the Gospel of Mark from this lens that wherever Jesus went, he brought healing and life and restoration. And so we're looking at the Gospel of Mark as Jesus on mission. And our hope is that as we study the life of Jesus, that we'd also be a people that lives a life on mission. That just wherever we go, that we don't view it as missions trip, that you do it somewhere over there, but we live on mission. That wherever we go, we just bring the Gospel. And so the Gospel of Mark, I like this Gospel. It is the shortest Gospel, 16 chapters. It's referred to as the ADD Gospel, and I like that. If you're like me and you're like distracted easily, this is the Gospel for you. Uh, Mark has this word. He says a lot. He says immediately, immediately. Mark doesn't know how to transition well, so instead he just says immediately and goes to a new story. And uh, that's what we see in this Gospel. This is the first Gospel written this is the first gospel actually penned. It's believed by a guy named Eusebius, a church father from like the second, third century, said that the gospel of Mark is really Peter's gospel. So it's as if Mark spent time with Peter, listening to Peter, and he wrote these things down. Peter actually, uh, in 1 Peter chapter 5, 13, calls Mark his son. He calls Mark his son, that Mark is a son in the faith to him. And so Peter's invested into Mark. He spent time with Mark that this might be Mark's gospel, but we see it almost through the lens of Peter's eyes. So as we read this, it's always fun to kind of have those close personal experiences. You realize that's probably Peter's, you know, vantage point of this. And so this is the shortest gospel. It's a really compact gospel. There's so much here. And so uh, just, to, just so you know where we're at in, in this story, last week we looked at how Jesus was ministering around the Sea of Galilee. He comes ashore. This guy named Jairus, a ruler of the synagogue, meets him and says, Jesus, please come with me. My daughter's about to die. So Jesus is like, okay, let's go. As they're on this journey to Jairus' house, this woman who's had this ailment for 12 years, for 12 years she's been bleeding, and, and she comes to Jesus, and she and with this mindset of, if I could just touch his garment, I'll be made well. She's touched him. She touches him, and it says immediately she's made well. Then Jesus felt the power leave him and says, who touched me? And the disciples, very frustrated and confused, go, uh, Jesus, everybody touched you. What do you. The crowds are thronging you. What do you mean who touched me? He goes, no, no, I felt something different happen. And Jesus causes this woman to go public with her faith, to say, hey, I touched you. And she tells him the whole truth. While all this is happening, Jairus is just in a hurry to get home. His daughter's on his deathbed, and he's thinking, can we, can we end this? Can we move on? And so they move on, and as they move on, someone says, hey, don't even bother Jesus anymore. Your daughter's dead. And then Jesus looks at him and says, this is the time to have faith. Believe now at this moment. So they get to his house. The daughter's now dead, and he wanted a healing, but what he gets is a resurrection, that Jesus raises his daughter back to life. 
And so we see these two stories of faith. And in a sense, we, if you remember last week, we talked about how they're incomplete faith, misguided faith, maybe even superstitious faith, and yet Jesus met them where they're at. And then Jesus also took them further than they wanted to go. And so we talked about that idea of that Jesus does take our incomplete or broken faith. And Jesus does meet us where we're at. But he also does take this man further than he wanted to go, resurrection, and further than this woman wanted to go, making her faith go public. And so we looked at that story as a whole, and we saw great acts of faith. And here today, we're going to actually see kind of the opposite. We're going to see unbelief. We saw this this great time of this woman, and and Jairus had this great act of faith, but now we're going to see Jesus go to people, and they just don't believe. And we're going to actually see Jesus be rejected by his own people. And so here in Mark chapter 6, Jesus now leaves the Sea of Galilee and he comes to his own hometown. So Jesus is in his home, his territory, and his own home rejects him. And so we're going to look at rejection, that if it's a part of Jesus' life, it's going to be part of our lives. We're going to look at unbelief, how I just pray that we are a people of faith, that we actually believe God at his word. And we're going to read the story as a whole, and I think there's just so much here. And so what I kind of see in this context, we're going to look at Mark chapter 6, verse 1 through 13, uh, and what I kind of see as a whole is, is this, the title today is simply, Disciples See, Disciples Do. All right, disciples see, disciples do. They've watched Jesus for so long, heal and minister and love and get rejected, and now they're going to heal and minister and love and get rejected. So we see disciples see, disciples do. And, and please just hear this before we just study this, before we read this. Um, I really don't want this, again, just to be something where we study a text and all it is is a Bible study, but we don't necessarily believe or enter into it. Like we don't believe the text and embrace it and, and make it a part of our lives and realize that Jesus has called us. Jesus has sent us. That we're, we're still part of this mission 2,000 years later. That Jesus sent disciples then and he's still sending us now. And how I just would love for us to, to learn from the mistakes of his own hometown. To learn from the successes of the disciples and the failures of the disciples that we really would be a people like Jairus and this woman from last week who showed faith and not like his own, own hometown who didn't have faith. And so let's read. It's Mark chapter 6. We're going to read the text as a whole, and then we'll pray uh, and look at it more in depth. But in Mark chapter 6, so Jesus just left you know, Jairus' house. It says, Then he went from there, and he came to his own country. He's in Nazareth. And his disciples followed him. And when the Sabbath had come, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many hearing Jesus were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things, and what wisdom is this which, which is given to him, that such mighty works are performed by his hands? Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, and the brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon? And are, they, and are not his sisters here with us? So they were offended at Jesus. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor, except in his own country among his own relatives, and in his own house. <laughs> so true. Verse 5. Uh, now he could do no, listen to this, he could do no mighty work there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them, and Jesus marveled. He marveled because of their unbelief. And then he went about uh, the villages in the circuit teaching. Verse 7. And he called the twelve to himself and began to send them out two by two, and he gave them power over unclean spirits. And he commanded them to take nothing for the journey except a staff, no bag, no bread, no copper in their money belts, but to wear sandals and, and not to put on two tunics. And Jesus also said to them, And whatever place you enter a house, stay there till you depart from that place. And whoever will not receive you nor hear you when you depart from there, shake off the dust under your feet as a testimony against them. Assuredly, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. So they went out and preached uh, that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick, and they healed them. 
Interesting text, <laughs> powerful text, a text where Jesus is rejected and a text where we see the disciples potentially being rejected as well. And I just want to pray and ask that God would speak to us this morning. So let's pray. Father, our, our hope is to really hear from you now, not even me. God, we just want to, what is it you have for our church here this morning? God, what is it you want to speak to us? And, and we thank you for this text where we're at today. God, we thank you for the reminder that if you, if you were rejected, that we also will be rejected. That as you ministered and loved and helped and served, people still hated you in the midst of that. And, and God, we just ask that you would just comfort our hearts, encourage our hearts. Maybe even though it's, it's a harder text or there's some harder things here, we ask that you just um, make it really clear to us and speak to us and move in this place. And Jesus, we want to be more like you. In your wonderful name, amen. So we've all, we've all been there. All of us have experienced rejection to some sort or another. I mean, think about a time in your life where you were rejected by someone or by something or whatever it might look like. And it's funny how rejection kind of takes different shapes and forms as we grow up and as we get older. My son, Micah, he just turned three yesterday. Um, and he's very strong-willed and pray for kids ministry right now. Like, probably, they probably really do mean that, like need that right now. It's like pray for kids ministry. He's a very strong young man. Uh, we just turned three and it's funny, he's in this stage of life right now where if he wants you know, a donut or a cookie or anything like that. And we tell him, like, sorry, nobody. He, he looks at me or my wife and he goes, you're naughty. Like he calls us naughty for telling him no to sweets, which is kind of like a man after my own heart. Um, but it's funny. So he'll tell us, he'll actually tell on me or tell my wife, he'll go, mommy, daddy said no to me about the cookie. And she's like, well, he has a right to do that. Like in his mind, and, he, and you, it's funny, he looks at you with these eyes like, how dare you say no to me? And it's weird, when you say no to him over something small, it feels like he himself is being rejected by you. Like that's how he interprets it, like you're saying no to me. He feels rejected in that moment. And as we grow up and as we get older, rejection looks and feels maybe differently. This is a stupid illustration, but I remember being in high school and one of the most embarrassing, awful feelings in the world is when I would play basketball on the court and I would try to do a layup and someone would block my shot out of bounds and I'd be like, all right, have a good night, guys. And like, want to leave the gym. And just rejection or anything like that just diminished you and you felt little. It's funny, I was reading something about public speaking and why people people fear public speaking, how this, for, for many people, people fear public speaking more than even death. And this article, many articles are coming out more and more saying it's not so much that people fear public speaking, it's that they feel, they fear rejection. What people don't fear is not that, oh, I, can't, I don't want to speak in front of people, but what if, I, what if they don't like me? What if I say something I'm not accepted or loved by them? And what people actually fear is not so much public speaking, but they feel, they fear this idea of being rejected. And here's what, what we see. Rejection is inevitable. Sooner or later, everyone will be rejected at some point in time for something, over something. And it's something that we're all going to walk through in some way. And it's funny how you will go into a job interview and be rejected. You know, you'll ask a girl out and she'll be like, I'm doing my hair. And you're like, is that still a thing? Do people even do that anymore? Like, yeah, I guess so. Like, we'll, we'll all experience rejection. I remember actually my first time and only time I was rejected in high school. I'm just kidding. Uh, not really. But I remember, <laughs> I remember in high school, um, I, you know, I was like a goofy, fun kid. And like, I didn't really put myself out there necessarily. Like, I would just, you know, try to be friends with people. And there was a girl my freshman year who I liked. And I feel like every guy at the school liked her. She was new and therefore everyone liked her. Um, and I, I, I had no chance in the world in my mind, but like I made her laugh here and there. And I'm like, oh, I think she likes me. I make her laugh. I don't know. And her birthday was coming up and I've never done anything like this. I, I saved like 10 bucks and that really was hard for me. I saved like my lunch money. Like I like two bucks a day. I know it sounds like I'm from 1940, but I'm not. Uh, but I saved my money. And I remember like I go to the store, I buy her this bracelet. I, 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 uh, I happen to run into her after school. Like, oh, well, good. oh, I didn't know you'd be here. And of course I like planned that. And I remember like I just gave her this bracelet for her birthday 
And from that point on, I wasn't funny anymore. I don't, I don't know what happened, but like, I gave her this bracelet, and f- from that point on, like, she just didn't want to talk. We never talked like after that. And I don't think she even said thank you. And I'm like, oh, thank you, that's so kind. It's like, oh, a bracelet. I'm never talking to you again. Like, I don't know what happened. I don't know why I'm like, girl- and I remember like freshman year, my like, girls are mean. The girls are so mean. Like, it hurts so much. Um, and it kind of scarred me for a couple of years. Rejection hurts. Rejection scars you. And, and here's something again for all of us, because we will be rejected in some capacity. Sooner or later, someone will reject you for something you believe in, something you stand for, something you admire, something you like to do, whatever. Someone, someone or many people, we'll all experience rejection. And, and here's the thing. What if we didn't have to fear rejection? What if, what if how we responded to rejection completely changed? What if it didn't ruin us or wreck us anymore? What if it didn't prohibit us from taking steps of faith? What if we realize rejection is going to just be a part of the Christian life, but it doesn't mean we stop or slow down? It doesn't mean we're done or we give up. I think how you and I re- respond to rejection shows a lot about who we are. Because we are going to be rejected for what we believe in and who we stand for, and we are going to be rejected for different things. And so what we see here in this passage, and it's really interesting to me, and I, I, I tried to squeeze it in, but I couldn't. Uh, there's three stories of rejection. In verse 1 through 6, Jesus is being rejected. In verse 7 through 13, Jesus is like, hey, here's what you do when you are rejected. And then we're going to see next week, Jesus brought, talks about John the Baptist who was beheaded, who was ultimately rejected. And we're going to look at the first two stories today in verse 1 through 13, but we see kind of this big picture of rejection. What happens when you're rejected? How do you respond? How did Jesus respond? What do we do? What does it look like? So here's a few thoughts today. And when it comes to our text and what we see here in verse 1 through 13, here's what I see. Uh, I see that Jesus is rejected. We see Jesus rejected. In verse 5 and 6, we're going to see Jesus amazed. Then we're going to see the disciples empowered and the disciples amazed. All right? And it's kind of like that disciples see, disciples do. Jesus is rejected. Jesus is amazed. In a sense, not just are they empowered, but they're also rejected, and then they're also amazed, but in a different way. So just follow this with me. Again, it's kind of like disciples see Jesus do it, now they do it. So Jesus rejected. Jesus rejected. Look at verse 1 again. We'll just reread this really quick. Verse 1. It says, Then he went out from there and came to his own country, and his disciples followed him. And when the Sabbath had come and began to teach in the synagogue, and many hearing Jesus were astonished, saying, where did this man get these things? And what wisdom is this which, which is given to him, that such mighty works are performed by his hands? Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? Are, the, are not his sisters here with us? Listen to this. So they were offended at him. They were offended at him. All right, let me just Again, bringing you kind of into the context, Jesus has just been traveling around the Sea of Galilee, different areas, Capernaum, and healing people, casting out demons, raising a little girl back to life. I mean, he's calming the storm. People are beginning to see, maybe this is not just the Messiah, maybe something more than the Messiah. Maybe this is God himself with a word. He calms the storm. With a word, thousands of demons are cast out. And Jesus' popularity is growing amongst the crowd, but also his hatred is growing amongst the religious rulers. And now Jesus, in this point of popularity, comes home. And he comes to his hometown. Where you think it'd be like, our hero is here. This guy from our home. And in a sense, they are at first astonished, but it turns into being offended. Now, I want to talk about Nazareth really quick. Um, We don't know too much about Nazareth. Um, You can still go there. I've been to Nazareth. We will go there in 2020, by the way, if you guys want to come. Uh, But you can go to Nazareth and see this area. It's not really an impressive area. It's beautiful views. It is elevated a little bit higher, and you have some like rocky views below, like the valley below. It's, it's a beautiful area, but really it's believed at this time maybe 70 people were in Jesus' little village, really, Nazareth. Maybe at the most 200 people. 
I mean, not a lot of people there. If you guys remember in John chapter 1, Philip goes to Nathaniel and says, Hey, Nathaniel, we found the Messiah. He's from Nazareth. And, and do you remember what he said back to him? He goes, Can anything good come from Nazareth? Like, nothing good comes from there. Like, what good could come from there? And so he says, Can anything good come from Nazareth? And he's like, Come and see. The, the best has come from Nazareth. And just so you guys understand, too, this is the second time Jesus goes back to his home. Jesus went to Nazareth another time in Luke chapter 4, a separate time earlier. This is his second time in Luke chapter 4, just so you kind of read about his first homecoming. In Luke 4 verse 28, listen to this. Uh, it says, So all those in the synagogue, when they heard these things, when they heard Jesus' teachings, they were filled with wrath. And they rose up and they thrust him out of the city and they led him to the brow of the hill on which their city was built, that they might throw him down over the cliff. Then passing through the midst of them, he went his way. I don't love that part. I don't, I don't get that. It's like Jesus probably just hit the pause button, just like walk through. Like, where'd Jesus go? I don't even know how that looked like. But they bring him out to the edge of the city and they're like, let's kill him. They're so offended at him his first time, they, they wanted to kill him. Jesus goes back and now he has 12 disciples. I wonder what that felt like. Yeah, like I'm back. I don't know. But yeah, he brought his guys. He's back there a second time and they're just as offended at him. And, and here's what I want us to see in this. They're going, this is not who I thought the Messiah would be. This is not how I thought the Messiah would come. They're going, we know him. We know his family. We know his siblings. We know his background. And for them, it wasn't who they thought the Messiah would be or how he'd come. They didn't like how he came. They didn't think there's, there's no way the Messiah came from our village, our city of, of Nazareth. In spite of all the evidence, even if you look at verse 1 and 2, like they were amazed at his teaching. They're also recognizing the fact that he performed miracles. Like they see valid truth that Jesus is the Messiah, but they still reject him. And it's interesting because that does happen today still. Still we talk to people and we'll give arguments for the existence of God. We'll give arguments for Jesus and who he is. And we'll talk about him in a big picture, in a small picture. We'll say, look at man, look at his followers. I mean, they're literally being fed to lions and lit on fire and they still would not deny the fact that they saw the risen Jesus. Even their families were being burned and murdered and killed and tortured and no one would still deny this truth and it just grew and grew and grew and we can talk about Christianity and share the evidence or share the thoughts or facts and how it spreads to every corner of this world today and people will still want to argue and deny the fact. And here, here's kind of the point and here's the first thing I see. In spite of clear evidence, you may reject him. In spite of clear evidence of Jesus Christ, you may reject him. They marveled at his teachings. They are amazed at it. They recognized that he had gifts and powers and did, and did miracles, but they're going, but we know you, we know your background. It cannot be done this way. It's not gonna, the Messiah is not going to come in this way. He's almost too humble for them. It actually says they were offended at him. If you want to circle the word offended, we get the word scandalized by that. This is scandalous to them. This literally means like they were disgusted by this fact. They didn't like the fact that this guy could be the Messiah. And why? Why were they offended? Why were they so scandalized? Why did this offend them so much? And here's what I, sh I propose to you, and here's what I want you to see. For them, this was too ordinary, and Jesus was too familiar. This is too ordinary to them. This is too simple to them. This is way too simple. Jesus is way too ordinary. And please listen, like, let's follow this. Here's what I love. We get some insight into Jesus' life here. Mark 6 is a big chapter. Uh, we, learned that we learned what his occupation was. It says he was a carpenter. By the way, that's a, that word, tecton, carpenter, is just a craftsman. Like, that means Jesus could have worked with wood or stone or metal. We always assume Jesus was carpenter, like wood. It, it could mean other things. Jesus was a handyman. Like, he was a craftsman. And people are going, wait, you're telling me the guy who fixed my roof is going to fix the heavens and the earth? Like, do you get, like, the under, like, frustration? You're saying this guy, this carpenter, they actually call him Mary's son, which is interesting. That's not just, like, that's not their just calling him out. That's actually derogatory. 
you are known by being, you know, your father's son. They're actually trying to bring up the fact that, Jesus, we know that you claim to be born of a virgin, but we actually believe you're a bastard child. That's how they view Jesus. They viewed that, you know, your, your dad, Joseph, and Mary came together, and they had sex before marriage, and that was scandalous to them. And so they're saying, you're the son of Mary. You know, that could mean that, or it could maybe mean Joseph at this point in time is dead. He's not alive. But it, it seems to be used in a negative tone. This is Mary's son. We know who you are. We know your testimony. We changed your diapers. We saw you as a child. You're telling me this is the Messiah? You're telling me this is the King of kings and Lord of lords? You're telling me this is the guy that's going to make all things right? And this offends them. Someone who comes from their own hometown and someone who had such a humble beginning. And, and here's what I want us to see, honestly. There was no room for a humble Messiah to them. There was no room for a humble Messiah. No one expected the Messiah to come so humbly the way Jesus did. See, we as people, we like extraordinary things. We like celebrities. We like gifts and talents. We like to elevate people and put them on a platform. And we want, we want ordinary people to do extraordinary things. And the Bible's so different because it's the opposite. It's here's an extraordinary God doing ordinary things. Here's a God who became a man. A God who did not become a man and live in a palace, but was born in a stable. He didn't have celebrities and royalty at his birth. He had shepherds. And, th- and this, this kind of frustrates people. This is too ordinary. This is too simple. This is too familiar. And this frustrated them. And here's what I mean by when I say it's too ordinary, because I, I do want us to, to understand this. For them, they're thinking it cannot be this simple, that salvation must be based off performance of some sort, off some great thing, off some high and mighty thing, but this is too ordinary, too simple. Let me kind of give you an illustration of this, because I, I appreciate this aspect of it. Uh, in 2 Kings 5, do you guys remember the story of Naaman? The story of Naaman, if not, I'll tell you. In 2 Kings chapter 5, there's a guy named Naaman. Naaman is a Syrian general. I mean, this guy has a lot of authority, a lot of wealth, a lot of money, a lot of power, a lot of influence, but he also has leprosy. And he has this little Israeli girl, this little Jewish girl, who says, I know someone who can heal you and make you better. And he's like, who? I'm desperate. I'll do anything. She's like, go to Elisha. Elisha will tell you what to do. Whatever he says to do, do it. So Naaman, this great Syrian general, with his army, with his guard, with everything around him, comes to Elisha's house. Elisha doesn't even go outside to meet him. Elisha sends his servant. So Elisha's servant goes to Naaman. Naaman feels disrespected by that. And he says, listen, you want to be healed of your leprosy? Go dip in the Jordan seven times. And it says that he leaves just in, in, in fury. He's mad. He's angry. He leaves. Like, let's get out of here. And his servant's like, why wouldn't you do it? And his servant said this. They said, if he asked you to do some great deed, would you not have done it? Why not this simple thing? Why not this ordinary thing? And so he has second thoughts, and he goes back, and he goes, okay, what should I do? He goes, dip in the Jordan seven times. He dips in the Jordan seven times, comes out, and his, his flesh is like as clean as a baby, basically, is what it says. His just flesh is back to new. And it's crazy because that's how our mind works, right? Here's something. God's like, here's what you need to do for salvation. Here's what you need to do for eternal life. Here's what you do to be healed. And a lot of us in our heart of hearts go, that's way too easy. That's way too simple. That's way too ordinary. Like if, if Elisha said, I want you to go kill that three-headed dragon and bring back the golden apple. If you bring back the golden apple, you will live. He'd be like, yes, because he'd be like, I did this. I accomplished this. I don't need charity. I don't need grace. I don't need this. Look what I did. Look what I accomplished. But because it was so simple, because anyone could do it, because a prostitute could go to Elisha and have the same request and he could have a simple answer like that, he didn't want to be known amongst the common people. He didn't want to be associated with something so simple. Like, he, he had a name. He wanted to keep his name. He wanted to have a strong name. And here's what I love about the gospel. It's so ordinary. It's so simple. There's no eightfold path. There's no five pillars of this. It's simply believe. It's simply by grace through faith are we saved. It is so ordinary and so simple. And it's not like we have to be, like, you know, really smart or a different echelon of life. Like it's as simple as a, as a small child 
who can say, I believe that. I surrender to that. See, the gospel is so unique because it's really available to everyone. The high and the mighty, the lowest of lows, the gospel is available to everyone. And this is something that offends us. Guys, this offends our pride. You see, the reason why they are so scandalized by Jesus is Jesus from our home, his brothers, his sisters, we know them, we see them. You're saying he's the Christ, the son of God, and in a sense that hurts their pride because it's too simple, too ordinary. And this is what, I love this because our God loves doing extraordinary things through ordinary people. Our God loves ordinary people, ordinary families. He loves taking the, like, we read about these great men and women of faith, and you're like, they are, they're not just ordinary, they're not, like, they're below ordinary. <laughs> and God just does crazy great things to them, and this is the gospel of grace. That's just available to everyone. It's so simple. Remember when the Pharisees came to Jesus in John 6, and they go, Jesus, what are the works we must do to have eternal life? And Jesus goes, this is the work, singular. This is the work you must do. Believe on me whom the Father has sent. And that frustrates them, and that frustrates us. See, we don't like this thought. And think about what Jesus said to the religious people. He says, hey, the prostitutes and tax collectors will enter the kingdom of God before you. That offends our pride. Jesus said, hey, the prostitute, tax collector, the people we disregard, they will be in heaven before you. They'll be in the presence of God before you religious people. Why? Because they have this humility and this sense of need, this sense of brokenness, this sense of I can't do it on my own. I need someone outside of me. And, and again, it, it humbles you. It's not that the good people are in, the bad people are out. It's that the, the humble people are in and the proud people are out. Do we get that? Not that good people you're in, bad people you're out. It's are you humble enough to come in? And if you're proud, you're out. God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Amen? I mean, this, God, this story, again, it is scandalous. It's looking at someone who lived a really moral life and saying, if, I don't care all the good things you did. If you don't know Jesus, you're going to be separated from him forever. And it's looking at someone who lived a disgusting, terrible life, and it's like, I don't care what you did. If you believe on Jesus, you'll have eternal life. And that's offensive to people. They go, it's too simple. It's too, it takes away from what I've done. And you're like, yes, it does. The pressure is no longer on you and on your performance. It's on Christ's performance and what he's done for you. Amen? And this is a scandalous message. And this is an offensive message. And they're offended. They're disgusted, literally, with this word. They're disgusted by Jesus and his life because he's too simple. He's too ordinary. There's no way he's the Messiah. And so they reject him. And I love what verse 4 says. Jesus is like, a prophet, basically, is what he's saying. I'll put it in my words. He's like, a prophet has honor everywhere except in his own country, except with his own family, except with his own relatives. And, and here's the next thought I want to share with you. In, in spite of close proximity, you may dishonor him. In spite of close proximity, you may dishonor him. Please hear this. Because this is not just for Nazareth. For those who, who grew up around Jesus, for those who've been around the church for a while, in spite of close proximity, you still may dishonor him. Just because we're around Jesus doesn't mean we know Jesus. Just because they grew up with Jesus doesn't mean they knew Jesus. You see, you might be around Jesus your whole life and never really appreciate Jesus. And it's, I'm so guilty of this, you guys. I'm so guilty of the people who are closest to me to, to like not honor them to not love them, to not be patient with them. I'll be patient with others, but not my closest family. And that's so sad. And we see this characteristic in the life of Nazareth and in many of us. Just because you're around Jesus does not mean you know Jesus or a relationship with Jesus. And that's what it's saying. And he's like, man, a, a prophet has honor everywhere except in his own hometown. And, and it's so true. Is it not the hardest to, to minister or share the gospel with your family? Like, is it not the hardest? Like, it, for me or anyone, like, it's the hard, like, I would rather have some outsider come in and share the gospel, because in a sense, like, they know me. They know me when I was seven years old, and I said that mean thing when I was seven, and that still haunts them today when I'm 30. Like, it's weird. It's just hard to share with family. It's hard to minister to family. And, and Jesus goes, it's, it, Proverbs has honor everywhere except in his own hometown, and what I learned from this, what we see from this, is in spite of close proximity, you still may dishonor him. And in spite of clear evidence, you still may reject him. 
And this is what we see happening in his own home. So they reject Jesus. The one that watched him grow up, they go, there's no way this ordinary guy from our city, from our village, from Nazareth, is the Messiah. And they're offended at him. And I love verse five. I don't love verse five and six. It's kind of sad, but I love it at the same time. Look at verse five and six. We're gonna see number two. Jesus is amazed. Jesus is amazed. Verse five, it says, now he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And Jesus marveled because of their unbelief that he went about the villages in a church in a circuit teaching. Jesus is amazed at this point. Jesus wanted to do a mighty work, but couldn't because of their unbelief. And, and here's what I want us to see, because I don't want us to get confused by this or lost in this. Jesus, wherever he's going, remember, he's bringing the kingdom of God. If we, as we've studied this so far, remember, we've looked at the kingdom of God. It's basically opposite. It's like, hey, you want to be the greatest, be the least. You want to find your life, lose your life. The kingdom of God's like a seed. It's small, and it seems like it's not powerful, yet when it's sowed into the ground, it can spread a forest. You know, the kingdom of God is so counter to how we view things. And, and what we see here is wherever Jesus goes, there's like many inbreakings of the kingdom of God and healing and restoration and life and people's lives being cleansed. And we're seeing all these things. And it's faith in a sense that we see in the kingdom that activated those things. It's faith that allowed Jesus to do what he did. It's Jairus and this woman from last week going to Jesus saying, I need to be healed. And it was faith that Jesus goes out, let's go. And he couldn't do a mighty work because of unbelief. And, and here's how, what I want us to see. Unbelief is one thing we see that limits Jesus. This is what we see. What we see in this passage is he couldn't do, it says, any mighty work because of unbelief. Unbelief is one thing that limits Jesus. And this is, this is something that I had to like slow down and stop in prayer for our church. And just go, God, give us insight on this, on this verse. Give us insight on what we just read here and on last week. And how do, we, how do we be this group of people, Jairus and this woman? And how do we not be this group of people? This limited Jesus. One person said it this way, I liked it. He said, unbelief does not make miracles impossible. It makes miracles unnecessary. Please hear that. Unbelief does not make miracles impossible. But it just makes them unnecessary. Because God is looking for faith. God is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him, is he not? What does it say in Hebrews eleven six? Without faith, it's impossible to please him. If there's no faith, you can't please God. Something that I honestly feel convicted in my heart is this. I think growing up, I've downplayed a lot of faith in my life. Like I downplay faith. If we had to be honest, you guys, I think a lot of us, not everyone, I don't want to speak for everyone, but I think some of us have been almost scarred or hurt by people we've seen on TV and how they've talked about faith and how they've preached faith, that now we've almost gone to this other extreme of not believing that faith matters. And if that's not you, I'd say that's me. Right? I've grown up and watched things on TV and they talk about faith in a way and this is just saying and speaking into existence and like it, it kind of like, it hurts, it, it saddens me because they can abuse this wonderful thing God has given us called faith. They abuse it for maybe selfish gain or different things and maybe now because of that we've gone to another extreme where we don't even talk about faith or, or acknowledge faith or acknowledge that faith matters or acknowledge that faith pleases God. That there is a way to please God and that's faith. And, and I think sometimes we, we kind of go too far on this. You know, like when I was reading this and praying over this, I had to get challenged in my own life because I do know I downplay faith a lot. You know, we were first praying over this and this church plants and, and we had prayer meetings in our house. And, I, and it's funny, I remember I, was, I had so little faith, so little faith. I remember we'd be in our house like, hey guys, let's like pray that God like maybe gives us a box truck so we have things like move stuff. If we ever get a location, like we like write it down, box truck. And I'm like, that's not going to happen. <laughs> I remember like thinking, we'll just pray. And like, and I, just for months and months, and the more we prayed, the more I'm like, I think God's going to give us a box truck. 
And I can't explain it. It's like I'm not some great, but I'm just like, I think God's going to provide. And you just felt like, I'm like, people like, I remember thinking, should we, should we invest in one and try to get something or storage unit or something? And it's like, no, not yet, not yet, not yet. And then, you know, this, a nonprofit ministry calls us and says, hey, we have an extra box truck. Do you want it? And I'm like, uh, yes. <laughs> you know, and then I just remember coming to Quiet Waters. And I remember coming here and there's different staff and faculty about a year and a half ago, different admin team. And I remember saying, hey, do you guys rent to churches? Like, no, we don't do that. The principal hasn't done that in like 10 years. Six months go by, eight months go by, they get a new principal, some new staff. I call them again, and it's like, yeah, we'd love to do that. And I remember just driving here thinking, like, we're not going to be here. We're going to be somewhere else. Like, it would be cool to be. And I just, you know, all these thoughts, that just fl- all these fears, all these things. And, and, and it's funny. Remember how we talked about last week, God met these guys where they're at. He met Jairus where he's at. He's met this woman where they're at. And I really do believe, and I don't want to get too, too strange here, but I've had, like, I've had to wrestle this, this verse myself this week and go, God, you've met me where I'm at, and what if God wants to do more? What if there is a sense of lack of faith still? What if, you know, we walked around neighborhoods and prayed and said, Jesus, just win this neighborhood to you. Like, we want this neighborhood to know you. And we walked around bigger neighborhoods, smaller neighborhoods. We went other places and Jesus, let's do this. We ask, and we might not believe it the first 10 prayer walks. But we're like, actually, whoa, Jesus wants to save this, these people. Jesus wants to do something here. What if we actually believed Jesus, that he actually cares more for the lost person than I do? That Jesus actually wants to save someone more than I do? And what if we were actually to like actually believe and pursue and pray and pray? And like, I, I've just been challenged this week and I don't know what this will look like. I have no idea and I don't want to say anything too premature, but I do want to start believing more things and going, God, you meet so many times people where they're at in their faith and you, you healed a few people here, but you couldn't do a mighty work. He marveled at their unbelief. He marveled at their unbelief. There are two times we see Jesus marvel. There are two times in the Bible we see Jesus marvel. One's when that centurion says, hey, I talked about this last week, but he goes, hey, you don't even need to come to my house, just speak the word, and my servant will be made better. And Jesus goes, I have not seen such great faith in all of Israel. He marveled at that man's faith, it said. He marveled, going, wow, you're a Gentile, and you have more faith than all these Jews about their Jewish Messiah. Wow. He marveled at his faith. Here, he marvels at their lack of faith. It's like, wow, you, you grew up with me. You've seen me. You've seen what I've done. You, you believe these things. You see these miracles. You still don't believe. I've never seen such great unbelief. And it led to marveling at their unbelief. And it's like, Lord, please don't marvel at our unbelief. I would love to make Jesus marvel, right? Like, wouldn't that be so cool? Like, Jesus like, wow. Like, that centurion, wow. Like, he was marveled at that centurion's faith, and that, but not marvel in this way. <laughs> I don't want to make him marvel in this way. I'm just saying I, I really do want to be, I want to be someone who values faith. I want to be, say, Jesus, I, God, without faith, it's impossible, it's impossible to please you. That you're a rewarder of those who diligently seek you. Do you not want to believe that again? <laughs> do you, even though we've been maybe hurt by previous things or churches or people or television, or, do you not want to believe that again? That God does care more for our city, our area, our home than even we do? Do we not want to believe that God wants to do more than we could ask or think? Or, like, do we not want to believe that again? Like, he's, I think it was God who told, um, was it Haggai? who's like, I will do a work in your day that if I were to tell you, you would not believe it. I'm going to do something so big that you, you wouldn't believe. Like, do we believe that God wants to do something that would blow our minds? God has blown our minds so far in this, this journey. It's been the most humbling thing. It's been the most crazy thing. I'm like, and I, I just do believe God's like, there are people who still don't know me. There are people who still need me. He marveled at their unbelief. Jesus was amazed. And now what we're going to see in verse 7 through 13 is Jesus empowers his disciples. All right. So Jesus, now we're going to see the disciples empowered. Jesus was rejected. Jesus was amazed. The disciples are empowered and then the disciples will be amazed. Look at verse 7. Verse 7, it says, And he called the twelve to himself and he began to send them out two by two and he gave them power. He gave them power over unclean spirits. He commanded them to take nothing for the journey except a staff, no bag, no bread, no copper in their money belt, but to wear sandals and not to put on two tunics. 
Also, he said to them, in whatever place you enter a house, stay there till you depart from that place. And whoever will not receive you nor hear you when you depart from there, shake off the dust under your feet as a testimony against them. Assuredly, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. All right, let me kind of explain what's going on here. So far, the disciples have been been with Jesus at Jesus' side, watching Jesus. Wow, Jesus, you're so amazing. Like, just watching him. Now it's like, Go right? It's that time where it's like you're, you throw your kid in the pool. Like, you need to swim. It's kind of that, that point in time. It's like, you need to go now. Jesus told them this would happen. In Mark chapter 1, Jesus told the, the Peter, James, and John, I'm going to make you fishers of men. And Mark chapter 3, when he chose the 12 disciples, it says he called them to himself. And in Mark chapter 3, verse, I think it was 14, it says it this way, he appointed the 12 that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach. This is why he, he called the 12, so that he might send them out to preach. Here's that time now in Mark 6. Now it's like, you've been with me, you've seen this, now go. I'm giving you power to heal, to cleanse, to preach, to communicate, to teach. Go. And I, I do just so appreciate this because, you know why? It feels premature, does it not? <laughs> like, if you read about the disciples, and they're freaking out on the boat, and they're like, Jesus, we're going to die, the boat, the storm, we're going to die. They get to the other side, there's a demon-possessed guy, and doesn't even say they left the boat. Like, so far, the disciples haven't really been in a place where you're like, I think they're ready to be sent out. I would look at them and say, this is premature. You guys remember, Jesus started his ministry about 30 years old. The Gospel of Luke tells us. 30 years old, he starts his ministry. It's believed that these guys, and even the women that followed him, that his disciples themselves were in their teens to early 20s. And they just seem like a bunch of knuckleheads. I'm the greatest in the kingdom. No, I'm the greatest in the kingdom. Oh, yeah? Jesus, which one will sit your right hand? He's like, ah, oh, you guys. Like, it just seems like they don't get it. And it's funny that now Jesus is like, go. But you're like, but are they ready? And, and what I see is that it doesn't really matter if they're ready. They're called to go. Now, was there time? Was there training? Was there preparation? Yes. This is not, you know, Mark chapter one. This is much more down the road. There's some ministry happening, things taking place. Now he's like, now it's time to go. It still feels premature to me in my eyes, but who am I? <laughs> Jesus says, you're ready, they're ready. And he says, go. And I love what we see here because there's a few truths I want us to see. When, it says, when I say the disciples are empowered, we see a few things attached to this that Jesus makes really clear. Here's the first thing I think that you guys all saw. Um, the first thing when it comes to being empowered as disciples is this. Number one is be dependent. Be dependent. This is so interesting to me. He's like, go, don't bring two of anything. Don't have money on you. Just go. You got to depend on God and you got to depend on the people you're ministering to. And really that's what it is like to be a missionary. You got to depend on God and depend on the people. Let them feed you, stay at their house, let them take care, but you're going to go, be dependent upon God and be dependent upon people. And again, this really kind of goes back to just the whole idea of the kingdom of God. When Jesus talked about the kingdom of God and we talked about this upside down kingdom or this right side up kingdom, where it's just kind of like reversed. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew 6, and they would have heard the sermon by then in Matthew 6. But in Matthew 6, Jesus said, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. Verse 34 says, Therefore do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about its own things. So here's what I see. Jesus is, is really applying this now. Seek first the kingdom of God. Advance the gospel. Tell them who I am. Tell them to repent from their sins and believe on me. And he's, he's teaching these things. And he's like, and do not worry. Don't worry. If you take care of God's mission, he's going to take care of you. I mean, is that not Matthew 6.33? If you take care of God and his kingdom and seek that first, all those other things will be added unto you. And God has been so faithful to do that. When, when my wife and I, and I, I wish I could tell the whole story now, but on my wedding ring before I lost it. Um, I had Luke 12, 31 inscribed on it. It was seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. It was that verse, but Luke's version. 
because literally that was when you're 19 years old and you're going, hey, we're 19 and idiots. Uh, let's get married. Let's go do this. And I want to serve Jesus forever. And I want to serve Jesus forever. We have no money. Okay. And honestly, God has just been so faithful. As we've put first his mission, as you put first his mission, as you put first his kingdom, watch him take care of you. He's so faithful. He really is. And he's teaching the disciples, be dependent, be dependent. Believe on God, believe on the people, you're be dependent. And this is so good. And can I tell you, I have to point this out. Um, when he is like, stay in their house, this changes how you minister to people. Because I, I have to point this out. They're not tourists. They're not tourists. They are staying there. They're living. They're dwelling there. And I'm going to say, like, yeah, Christians, like, we're not just tourists here. We're staying here. We're living here. We're, dwell- we're dwelling here. We're not going to drop, like, some spiritual bomb and be like, peace, and, like, be a jerk. We're not going to do that. I think too, too often in Christianity, I've seen people go out and evangelize, and they say something really kind of, like, hurtful and almost negative and mean, and, like, walk away, like, well, you should have believed, and, like, walk away, and it's like, that is just arrogant and prideful and rude, and it's like, can I tell you, if you're going to sleep at someone's house that you're sharing the gospel with, it's going to change your tone, it's going to change how you speak with them, when, how you just listen for a while, how you just get to know them for a while, you know you'll be there in the morning, so you'll probably, like, I can wait, I have time. Do you see like living missionally is not just like giving someone a tract or saying something like spiritual and running away. And like, I feel like I've seen that too often. It breaks my heart when I hear a Christian say something in public like, well, if you don't believe, you're just going to go to hell. And like they walk away and I'm like, ugh. Like they, they ministered among them. They lived among them. They woke up in the morning. We're like, hey, let's have breakfast. Okay. There's something about that. It's going to change the way. It's being dependent is going to change the way that you minister and love on people. And here's the thing again, we are not tourists. You know, people sometimes like, and we, we there's, a, there's a side of it where we should go into all the world and make disciples. Of course we should. And that's what the disciples did. But notice how they lived among them and they got to know them. And again, we're not just tourists here. Like live among our neighbors or living among the people around us. Like we'll get to know them and it doesn't have to be just cutthroat right away. Like we can spend time with them and hear them and get to know their story and their needs and find the best way to minister to them. To find the, the, most, the most tactful and loving and gracious and truthful way to minister to them, not just to drop a spiritual bomb and be like, peace out. Like we gotta do this maybe a little bit differently. So we see them being completely dependent. And here's what I see in, them, in the idea of being empowered. Not just are they empowered, but they're in community. Be in community. We do, obviously, we have to point this out. He sends them out two by two. He's like, you're not gonna be alone. And, and again, the idea of ministering and sharing the gospel, advancing the kingdom is we cannot do this alone. That is really the idea. Don't do this alone. Do this with people. Do this with someone else. Be in community amongst each other. You can't just be alone doing this. Don't be some lone ranger. You're going to be taken out by the enemy that way. You're going to be with someone else. You know, when, we, my, when I went to recently this, this family's house and prayed over their house, and uh, we just got to, I shared this a few weeks ago or months ago, this prayer over this Muslim's house that they invited us over to is an awesome experience, but it's great to have someone else with me. It's great to pray over their home and pray over what's happening in their home with someone else. It's just, there's something about it. There's something about having someone else with you. There's something about doing a hospital call with someone else with you. There's something about loving or ministering the gospel with someone else with you. There's just something about it. And we see them doing it in community. And we know what Proverbs says. Proverbs 18, verse 1, put it this way. He says, whoever isolates himself seeks his own desire. He breaks out against all sound judgment. Do not isolate yourself. Be in community. Do this with someone else. Do this with each other. That is our hope. When we, when we write down like who we are, we want to be a community following Jesus. We're doing this together. A community, a community following Jesus. We're doing this together. We cannot do it alone. And he sends them out in two by two. And here's what we see also. Expect rejection expect rejection. Does not Jesus tell them this? Hey, when they reject you, here's what you do. We should expect it. Jesus is like, I was just rejected in my own home. You're going to go out. You're going to be rejected sooner or later. In, in a sense, we should expect that. Because when you are telling someone about Jesus, that is not popular, right? Can we just be honest? Even amongst Christians, it's not popular. Christians are like, don't tell me to tell people about Jesus. And you're like, what? Like, how does that offend people now? Like, it's not popular to evangelize. Even the word evangelism 
has like a really bad rap amongst a lot of people. I love what J.I. Packer said, though, when it comes to evangelism, and I want to read this to you guys. It's so good, because it's not just saying, like, God loves you, and there's forgiveness and grace. Here's how he defines evangelism. It's going to be really small. I'm sorry. He says, evangelism, I'll read it here. Evangelism means presenting Christ Jesus and his work in relation to the needs of fallen men and women who are without God, as a, who are without God as a father and under the wrath of God as a judge. Evangelism means presenting Christ Jesus to them as their only hope in this world or the next. Evangelism means exhorting sinners to accept Christ Jesus as their Savior, recognizing that in the most final and far-reaching sense that they are lost without him. Evangelism also means summoning men to receive Christ Jesus as all that he is, Lord, as well as Savior, and therefore to serve him as their king in the fellowship of his church, the company of those who worship him, witness to him, and work for him here on earth. He's like, this is what it means. It's not just saying, like, do you know that God loves you? Bye, I, did, I, I shared the gospel. It's so much more. It, it, you're, again, it's popular to talk about God's grace and God's mercy, mercy, but it's hard to say, hey, listen, if you don't know God as Father, you'll know him as a judge. Basically, that's what he's saying. You're presenting both sides. You're presenting everything, not just the good news, but what, the bad news because it makes the good news that much better. <laughs> he's like, you're presenting all of it. You're going to share the hard thing because it makes the good thing that much sweeter, that much better, and expect to be rejected. And Jesus says it this way, shake the dust off your feet. What does that mean? It's like an Eastern way of saying, you've done what you're supposed to do. Judgment's not on you anymore, it's on them. It's like, remember when Paul was sharing the gospel, I think with the Athenians, and he says, the blood is off my hands and it's on your head. I think it's in Acts 17. Paul's like, I have done what I was supposed to do. I've shared the gospel. You rejected, rejected, rejected. The blood's off my hands. It's on your head. This is the idea. Shaking the dust off your feet was just a way of saying, you've done your duty. Now it's on them. They've heard the word. They've heard the word. Now it's on them. Another way for us to say this, don't force yourself on someone. Just share it. What you're supposed to do, don't force. You know, I love the Beatitudes where Jesus like, blessed are the poor. Blessed are the... Nowhere does Jesus say, blessed are the obnoxious. Blessed are the obnoxious Christians who annoy everyone. Like, no, no, please don't, no. It's, there's a side of this for us where we're going to love people, share the truth, and it's going to be done graciously and tactfully and not just dropping bombs, as I mentioned. You know, I love what this guy named Francis Schaeffer said. He, he put it this way. He said, biblical orthodoxy without compassion surely is the ugliest thing in the world. <laughs> please hear that. Biblical or orthodoxy without compassion has to be the ugliest thing in the world. We have a lot of knowledge and a lot of information about God, but you don't have love. Knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. He's like, just expect to be rejected, but be rejected over the gospel, not for your obnoxiousness. <laughs> That's the side of it right now. Like, all of us need to hear that. You're going to be rejected for who Jesus is and what he says, but not for, don't be rejected because you're just an obnoxious Christian. <laughs> you know, preach the truth, preach grace in love, tactfully. And it also reminds us uh, that we're not responsible for their decision. I'm not responsible for someone's decision. You're not responsible for someone's decision. We're responsible to make the word, to get the word out there clearly and lovingly and graciously and truthfully, wholly. We're to get the word out there, but we're not, we're not forced to make, they're not, we're, we can't force them to make the decision. We're just going to trust the Holy Spirit to do what he does best. So Jesus empowers them to go, to be dependent, to be in community, to expect to be rejected. And here's what we see. We see them amazed. They're amazed. Look at verse uh, 12 and 13. You might not see it at first glance, but it says, So they went out and preached that people should repent, and they cast out many demons and anointed with oil, many who were sick, and healed them. Now again, this is the first time this has happened. They're, they're not used to this. Luke chapter 10's version of this same story says they came back to Jesus and said, Jesus, Jesus, we cast out demons in your name and healed people in this. And they came back rejoicing. Remember Jesus said to them, he goes, don't rejoice in this, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. They came back going, it worked. Jesus, it worked. I don't know if you've ever had that in ministry where you're like, I shared the gospel and it worked. He's like, yeah, 
yeah, that's going to happen. Like, it's going to work sometimes. They're like, oh my gosh, it worked, Jesus. Like, it, it happened. They're healed. And they healed it. And I love this. Like, there's an amazement to this, Luke tells us. He shows us some insight of, like, they're amazed by what's happening. And, and here's the thing again. We're not just empowered to, to just go and tell people the hard things. But we're, we are, they healed people. They minister to people. There's a side of it where we're going to see people's brokenness and needs and going, how can we not just, how can, how can we not just love you in word, but in truth? How can we not just love you in word, but in deed? How can we love you in our actions? How can we just show the gospel to you? And I want to end with this thought. What they preached it was that they would repent. And this is weird. This is always hard for me because John the Baptist's first word, like we see in ministry, is repent. Jesus' first word in ministry is repent. The disciples are sent out and they're saying repent. And again, this is like an ugly word to us. Like repent. We just think of like fire and brimstone, some guy on the sidewalk holding up a sign like repent. And you're like, eh, I guess I will. Like it, it doesn't really have a good like thing around it. But there really is something about turning back to Jesus. You're heading in a direction and turn back to Jesus. This guy named Thomas Watson, he's an old Puritan writer, so fun to read. He said, uh, repentance is a grace of God's spirit whereby a sinner is inwardly humbled and visibly reformed. Can we please hear that? Repentance is a grace of God's spirit whereby a sinner is inwardly humbled and visibly reformed. One of the hardest things for, for us, or maybe you, family member, friend, someone in the church, where you're trying to show them their sin or talk to them about repenting or believing in Jesus is to go, man, I cannot force them to be inwardly humble or visibly reformed, visibly changed. You can't force it. We can't make it happen. You're just praying, God, let your spirit inwardly humble them and let it lead to, to action and change visibly, outwardly, that we can all see. It's interesting, and I don't know that this is for someone, or I have no idea this is for many people, but this guy named Thomas Watson, he, he wrote this out. He talks about the six ingredients of repentance. I'm just going to put them up here really quick because I thought it was really good. He, he, I don't know if these are really all the ingredients, but I thought it was good. He talks about repentance, and he says, someone who repents and what true repentance looks like, first and foremost, they have a sight of their sin. They see their sin. It's when Isaiah sees God on the temple, and Isaiah says, woe is me. They have sight of their sin. Then they have sorrow for their sin. He calls it holy agony. And I love this. I don't know if we agonize over our sin. I don't know if we realize, man, God, I've hurt so many. I've hurt you in this process. I've just, I just ran over people. I don't know if you have like agony over that. But he talks about just sorrow for sin. Then he talks about confession of sin and how that's where God brings healing and restoration. And you, you agree. Confession, this word just means to agree with God. You're like, God, you say sin's bad. I agree. God, you say this is hurting me. I agree. You say this is, this is ruining relationships. I agree. You're like agreeing with God over your sin. Here's one that we don't talk about, shame for sin. Like, this is like, no, not, it's 2018, shame, no. But the idea is this, it's when the prodigal comes back to the father and, and in his mind he's rehearsing the speech and he goes, I'm gonna tell him I'm not even worthy to be his son. And he has this mindset of just this deep shame for his sin. He's like, I'm not even worthy to be your, but, and here's the thing, what, is, what does God do? What does the father do in Luke 15? The father puts his best robe on him, puts a new ring on him, kills the fatted calf. He goes, not only, you're, you're not gonna be a servant, you're not only a son, but you have my place. But we talk about that, but we don't talk about the mindset he had going to the father. He's like, I'm not even worthy to be a son. I know it sounds crazy, but that is a good mindset. It's a good mindset to realize I'm not even worthy to be called a son or daughter. I'm not even worthy. And God's like, yeah, you're not, but I'm gonna make you righteous because I'm so good. Like, and there's something so important, but you gotta recognize the, the shame for it. Then he talks about hatred of sin. Just knowing, like, man, this sin could kill, it could kill me, it could kill my family, it could ruin relationships. I hate what sin does to me. I hate what sin does to others. I'm not hating the person, obviously. I'm just hating the sin itself and how, how damning it is to my life and other people's life and hating the sin. And then he talks about turning from sin and returning to the Lord. And that's what repentance is. It's turning from sin, turning from one thing to another. Turning from the lesser to the greater. Turning from the sin back to God. And this is what they're preaching. They're preaching repentance. And this is, this is not a popular word, 
but it's so life-changing, and it's inwardly humbling, and it's outwardly visible. And this is what we see. They're preaching and communicating, and they come back rejoicing. And next week, we're going to see another story of rejection. So I'm sorry. It's like rejection week. But we're going to see this, this story happening, and there's so much we learn from this. And here's what I want to end with, because we're about to take communion. And, and here's what I learned from this, and here's what I want to share when, when it comes to this. Notice that we see that Jesus was rejected, and they will be rejected. But ultimately, and I do want us to really always, always get back to this. On the cross, Jesus was ultimately rejected so you and I could be accepted. On the cross, Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me so that you and I could ultimately be brought in? And I want to share this because, listen, don't reject rejection. I know it sounds weird. Don't reject rejection. When you really kind of embrace it and you realize Jesus was rejected so I could be brought in, Jesus was rejected so I could be accepted. And it really is a freeing thing for all of us to realize rejection's going to come, it's going to happen, but someone was rejected ultimately for me. And if he was rejected, I know I'll be rejected. And it just reminds us of the cross, reminds us of what he paid for, reminds us how, you know, we're really not rejected. Other people might reject me, other people not, might like us, or whatever, whatever it looks like. But ultimately, if Jesus accepts us, we're accepted. Since Jesus was rejected, we are completely accepted by the blood of Jesus at the cross. You and I are brought in because he was brought out of the camp to be crucified. And so you and I are brought in and we're ultimately accepted. Amen. And here's what I want to do. We're going to spend some time just remembering that. And here's what I want to share. In, in a moment, we're going to pass out communion and just play some worship. And I'm going, to, I'm going to leave and I'm going to let you guys take it at your seat. And here's what I want to encourage you. If you believe in Jesus Christ and you believe that he died on the cross from your sins and rose again from the grave and he's your Lord and your God, we, we say take communion as a reminder to always get us back to the cross, to always get us back to that great sacrifice Jesus made. And if you're a guest here, you're not a believer, you don't have to take communion. You can just let it pass in front of you. But if you say, you know what, I do want this and I do believe this and I do believe Jesus was rejected so I could be accepted, then take it. Remember what Jesus has done. Believe on him. It's not complicated. There's not some crazy ceremony. Just believe on him whom the Father has sent. Amen? It's it. It's believe on him whom the Father has sent. That's Jesus' own words. So I'm going to pray. We're going to have some worship. As worship is going on, we're going to pass out communion. I'm going to ask that you just take it at your seat when you're ready. Pray over it. Take it at your seat. And then we're going to come back up here and pray over, over you guys. But feel free to take it once you receive it. Let's, let's pray. Father, again, we're at a loss of, of four words in so many ways because um, all we can say is thank you. Thank you, Jesus, that <laughs> you were rejected so we could be brought in. That Jesus, you received all of the wrath, all of the pain, all the punishment for our sin so we could stand before God holy and blameless. Jesus, we just thank you for what you've done. And so God, just speak. Be in this place. We ask that you would just move, God, that, that the cross would be on the forefront of our minds, that the resurrection would be on our hearts, God, that knowing you've conquered sin and, and we can celebrate that. Lord, let this not just be a, a sad, gloomy thing, but a wonderful truth, Jesus, that you are alive, that we are brought in, that by your stripes we are healed. So Jesus, even as we take communion now and honor and celebrate what you left us a couple thousand years ago, we're just reminded of your body that was broken for us and your blood that was shed for us. So we thank you. Thank you that our sins are forgiven because of your blood being shed. And so Jesus, we look to you now. We thank you now in your wonderful name. Amen. You guys can come forward.